Very excited to talk to you today about what my colleagues and I have been working on um, to address Global Catastrophic Biological Risks, or GCBRs. So what I'll talk to you about today is the definition that uh, we have proposed for GCBRs, why we think this is an important topic to work on and why you might be interested, what can be done to address uh, these risks and what we are doing at our center to work on them. And then I'll finish up by talking about what you as, an, uh, as members of the EA community might do if you're interested in this topic to engage. So before I jump into GCBRs directly, I first want to tell you a little about how our center, the Center for Health Security, uh, got its start. And this is kind of a classic public health story that you may know a little bit about, um, but what I think demonstrates the devastating power of infectious diseases, uh, but also the power of humankind to address these types of risks. Our center was co-founded uh, under the direction of Dr. D.A. Henderson, who some of you may know uh, was the leader of the World Health Organization's campaign to eradicate smallpox back in the 1970s and 80s. Prior to 1977, when we had the last case of smallpox um, in nature, the disease was endemic to many parts of the world. Um, even when smallpox had been eliminated from some places like the United States, um, small, smallpox was killing about 2 million people a year before eradication began. Um, and even in the U.S., um, as late as 1947, when there was an introduction of a case from somewhere else in the world, it was a huge problem. Um, in New York, New York City in 1947, there was one imported case, which resulted in just a handful of secondary cases. And that resulted in the vaccination of, I think, about 2.5 million people in New York City. So that's just an illustration of, of what a problem this was. Um, smallpox was one of the most dreaded diseases of history. It killed about a third of the people who it were infected. And those who survived were permanently scarred. Some people, um, even though they survived, uh, were blinded by the disease as well. It was particularly devastating when it was introduced into an immuno immunologically naive population, a population that hadn't experienced the virus before. Um, so for an example, uh, when smallpox, along with measles and some other childhood diseases, were introduced into the Western Hemisphere um, in 1492, over the next century, it resulted in an epidemic that killed up to what's estimated as 90% of the native populations that were impacted. Um, this resulted in societal collapse, uh, social order, and economies collapsed for these native popu populations. Fortunately, smallpox also ushered in the vaccine era uh, with discovery of the first vaccine by Edward Jenner. But without vaccine and for these naive populations, um, the disease could be catastrophic. So smallpox was a terrible burden for humanity for centuries, uh, but its eradication was one of humanity's greatest, greatest achievements, I would submit. Uh, Dr. Henderson really took up the mantle of eradication when he was called upon, maybe reluctantly at first, uh, but the program that he helped lead was a true testament to what can be done when you have excellent leadership, um, some operational ingenuity, and some really simple tools. 
When DA started his work in Geneva, uh, smallpox, as I said, was endemic to many parts of the world. Uh, the goal of eradication, of course, was to have zero cases, um, or smallpox zero, as they called it. Uh, but practically, in order to reach that goal, um, they had to reach some both some of the most densely populated areas on Earth and also some of the most remote villages um, that were very hard to access. And it had to be done on a shoestring budget. The estimate for the total cost of eradication was only $300 million for a, about a 10-year program. There were specific characteristics of the variola virus, the smallpox virus, that made it uh, possible to eradicate. It only infected humans, uh, meaning that there was no animal reservoir, so it didn't lurk somewhere else um, with the possibility of being reintroduced into the human population. Um, and it was not communicable until someone was symptomatic, so there was no, no asymptomatic spread, which would make it more difficult to control. And we had a very effective vaccine. There was also a very simple tool that was developed during the eradication campaign. Some of you may have heard of it. It's the bifurcated needle, uh, which is pictured here. The bifurcated needle works. Uh, you dip the needle into some of the smallpox vaccine. It holds that very small amount of uh, vaccine liquid in between the prongs through capillary action. And then that is used to vaccinate on an arm. It's pressed into the skin multiple times. That was actually very effective. That was enough to induce immunity. And it was also very easy to teach somebody how to give that vaccination. So what that meant for DA and his team was that they could deputize people all over the world to go out and become eradicators. Um, thousands, tens of thousands of people in all corners of the globe were going from house to house, from village to village, and giving this vaccination and helping with eradication. So the reason I, I start with this um, example is that it both demonstrates, as I said, the power, the, the catastrophic nature of some infectious disease emergencies, but it also con conclusively proves, I think, that humanity has the capacity to come together uh, to work to combat these types of infectious disease and biological threats on a global scale. And so I take hope from this for the future because I think now we know that there are biological events that are possible that could be much worse than, than smallpox. On to global catastrophic biological risks. These are one of a few categories of risk with the potential, I think, to either severely and even permanently derail humanity. Um, our center has been working to help define these risks. Um, and this is just a short summary of what we think characterizes GCBRs. They are events in which um, a biological agent could lead to sudden, extraordinary, widespread disaster. Uh, importantly, in order for an event to be catastrophic, they would have to quickly go beyond the, the normal capabilities of governments and the private sector to manage these events. And if totally unchecked, they would have many other devastating effects beyond just the death toll of the disease itself. As a shorthand for catastrophic biological events, we think that, um, we think of GCBRs as at the level of 1918 influenza pandemic and above. 
Um, as you may know, the 1918 flu is estimated to have killed on the order of 50 to 100 million people, um, which is more than were killed in all of the wars of the 20th century alone. Now, obviously, most biological events are not going to be catastrophic. We have such a long history of epidemics and even pandemics that were either brought under control or just didn't have the characteristics that would uh, make them catastrophic events. But we do think there are a handful of scenarios that could have this catastrophic potential. Specifically, we think it's conceivable uh, that biowarfare could be catastrophic. Globally, we have a history of offensive biological weapons programs by nation states, um, many of which were just discontinued in, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, in addition, um, the U.S. had a biological weapons program, which was also discontinued. But we think that there are some nations that still have this as an active focus. Bioterrorism, particularly a series of bioterrorism attacks, um, has the potential to be catastrophic, depending on the, the agent that's used. Given recent advancements in a synthetic biology and biotechnology, the risk of an accidental or an intentional release of an engineered pathogen could be catastrophic. There are some scenarios, we think, uh, in which an ecosystem that we rely on uh, as uh, society, as humanity, uh, for survival, if that were disrupted uh, through biological means, that could be catastrophic, or um, pot potentially elimination of a major food source. And finally, there's the possibility of the natural emergence of a novel, highly virulent, um, highly transmissible pathogen, which could be um, a bad day for us. So although the probability of any one of these things happening is very small and difficult to quantify, uh, all of these scenarios, if they were to occur, I think could alter the course of human history. So um, as the point that was made this morning, I think spending some time and investing some effort in uh, combating some of these risks is important to do. There we go. So now that I've spoken a little bit about the risks, I want to highlight some of the work that our center is doing to begin to address these problems. Um, I should also say that there are a number of other organizations, uh, like the Future of Humanities Institute, the Cambridge Center for Existential Risk, the Center for Catastrophic Risk, that have been uh, addressing other types of catastrophic risk, uh, like you heard this morning, AI, um, nuclear winter. But GCBRs are still a relatively new area of study. So in beginning to think about these risks, our center wanted to first propose um, a definition, some of which you've, you've just seen, and examples of potential uh, GCB events. Um, my colleague, Monica Shakspana, is currently working on a project looking at uh, kind of fine-tuning that definition and also trying to find ways to communicate about these risks so that more people can um, get engaged and involved. Um, my colleague, Amish Adalja, who you will hear from next, uh, just finished a project looking at the characteristics of pandemic pathogens, what would make uh, a pathogen more likely to become a pandemic or a GCB event. Um, we have... Uh, 
work going on by Dr. Gigi Gronval, uh, who did a red teaming exercise recently. She brought together biologists from all stages of their careers to brainstorm about how biology could be misused. Um, and that was done with the purpose of trying to improve our ability to detect and understand when something bad is going to happen um, in biology. So those are the, the risk side of the equation. We're also working on some projects looking at how do you address these risks. So uh, my colleague Caitlin Rivers is working on a project to bring epidemic modeling and data science more into the field of, of epidemic response, which is doesn't always happen now. And I'm working with a, a team, um, including Caitlin, Tara Sell, Matt Watson, um, to look at types of technologies that we think could be useful in either preventing or in actually responding to a serious pandemic. We're keeping in mind kind of the gold standard of the bifurcated needle. That's what we want to do. We want to find the next bifurcated needle. So one other project that we're very proud of, which we recently finished, was called um, the Claydex Pandemic Exercise. So this was something that we did um, just last month. We brought together, okay, we brought together uh, senior leaders, uh, former government officials, so including uh, former Senator Tom Daschle, uh, former CDC director, uh, Julie Gerberding, the former FDA director, uh, commissioner, and they all came together and sat at the table and went through our exercise, which was a catastrophic uh, risk exercise. That one. Um, so we live streamed the event, which uh, has a lot of interesting lessons. Um, I was going to play for you a video, but um, unfortunately, it's it's not working. But the Claydex exercise involved the fictitious release of a genetically engineered pathogen, um, which was a parainfluenza virus with added virulence factors from a closely related virus. Uh, this combination made Clade-X about as transmissible as SARS um, and less than influenza. Its case fatality ratio was also moderate, uh, greater than that of a 1918 flu, but much less than viruses like Ebola or H5N1 flu. So the virus in the scenario was introduced in multiple attacks around the world, and then it spread more globally. Uh, the scenario progressed and eventually led to a catastrophic outcome uh, with more than 150 million deaths worldwide uh, within about 18 months. So some of the key points that were highlighted in this scenario were about the need for rapid development, uh, manufacturing, and distribution of vaccine, which we heard a little bit about in this morning's uh, fireside chat, um, the need for planning and how we will respond um, in this kind of an event, and the need for both national and global uh, cooperation and preparation. Um, these are just to, to name a few of the issues. Uh, this is archived online if you're interested in going back and watching any part of the day. Um, we're excited to see that this is already raising awareness in the U.S. and internationally, and uh, we're hoping it will have some more tangible impacts, too, where we've gotten indication that it may be um, influencing some legislation that's moving in the, the U.S. House right now, which is exciting. 
So all that being said, there's a lot more work that we need to do to reduce GCBRs. Um, if you're interested in this topic and you want to engage further, there's a number of ways I, I think that um, members of the EI community can engage. The first is working in innovation. As I said, finding the next bifurcated needle is a big challenge, um, but it could change the game for GCBRs. Um, there's, if you want to do research, there's a number of graduate programs, um, and some of which were highlighted on a recent 80,000 hours podcast with our director. And we're also starting a doctoral level program at Johns Hopkins focused on health security, and we're looking for students. Um, another way to contribute is uh, to apply to an organization to donate your time or resources um, to help organizations who are tackling these issues. And if you don't want to do research, um, policy change is extremely important as well. I think um, my ex brief experience, I went into government briefly at the federal level. Um, there's a lot you can do from inside government to make changes. And finally, uh, promotion, spreading the word about global catastrophic biological risks is always very important. So I think with that, um, I'll end my presentation. Thanks for your attention. Um, my contact information is up here, and I'll be around for the next day and a half or so. So feel free to come talk to me. All right, so we've got a few minutes for questions. And again, of course, you can put those through on the app or on the website. Um, and there are quite a few that have come through just in the last few seconds. Okay. Um, first, are we just getting lucky? I mean, this hasn't happened in 100 years. But I've, you know, I can recall Ebola and SARS, and there's always the kind of bird flu, swine flu news items running around. So is this rare, or are we lucky, or how should I be thinking about that? So I think you're going to hear more about that from my colleague, Amish Adalja, but I think it's a combination of of luck, and and sometimes we are able to intervene in some of these outbreaks to make them less severe. But I do think we've seen a number of pandemics in history that have been quite devastating for humanity, and so I, I don't I do think it's kind of an inevitable thing that we will see something else. Um, so going to audience questions, um, do you see danger in bringing the brain trust together? such as you did in this kind of, you kind of alluded maybe to something like that with there were some lessons learned mm -hmm. in, in live streaming. So is there a, a potential risk in just bringing people together and thinking about this in a structured way in the first place? Yeah, so there's not a, a way to classify information outside of the government space, but I think it's really important to keep in mind um, that there is information risk when you're talking about these things. We don't want to create a recipe for somebody to follow to do something really terrible. Um, and we definitely keep that in mind in everything that we do. Uh, Gigi's project uh, had some potential information risk, but she, every step of the way, um, wanted to keep that in mind and, and make sure that information wasn't put out into the world that made the risks worse. Can you contextualize for us maybe what 150 million deaths looks like to the 6.85 billion of us who are still hopefully around when that happens? I mean, is that like, yeah. does that bring us to the brink or is that, are we resilient to that? I don't have any intuition. I mean, I think we've, we've seen resilience to that kind of level of, of pandemic before. Um, there are different flavors of, of catastrophic risks. Um, our center has focused on all 
across the spectrum. But um, we come from a background of doing traditional biosecurity, and we think it's really important to focus on these higher-level uh, risks. But um, I think there are some that could derail humanity, but not necessarily end humanity. But there may be some existential risks as well. So there are definitely more questions than we will be able to get to, but you're going to be available at our next break, during our next break, for office hours. Yes. Uh, so there's another opportunity to engage with Crystal there. Um, do you think there are lessons from other categories of X risk that can be applied to biology? You mentioned that it's kind of a little bit newer, and they're mm-hmm. all pretty new. But are there things that you can draw from, say, the AI research field to apply to your work? Yeah, I think uh, GCBRs are so new that even just taking the time to sit down and think through in a systematic way what these risks are um, is a good start. Um, I'm sure there are many other lessons that can be learned from ex- existential risk research, but we're not even, we're basically at the definition stage, I think, with GCBRs. So we have a lot of work to do. Cool. Uh, maybe just the last question that we'll have time for right now. Are there any particularly compelling platforms, systems, technologies in the space of pandemic preparedness that you think would be just worth highlighting for the audience as kind of leaders to familiarize themselves with? Yeah, so we've just done this project looking at technologies that we think could be helpful. There's a number of technologies that I think are potentially game-changing. One that, although there's a lot of risk potentially with uh, synthetic biology, it is one of our best tools to combat um, these issues. So using synthetic biology, um, doing distributed manufacturing of medical countermeasures, I think could be something that changes the game when we need to respond to something bad. There'll be a lot more information in our, our report coming out, so I don't want to go into too much depth, but I think that's one area of needed investment. Cool. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. How about a round of applause for Crystal Watson? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.